and one of the first people to be busted for it was somebody that the police knew had been dealing cocaine for a long time and that was Charles Lamarchant. And they also said, a direct quote, he has ruined innocent girls and killed more men than had bombs. He was on a ferry in the Yarra River and he saw a young woman drowning and he dived into the river to try and save her. So he was a villain but on several occasions I suppose he, he played the part of the hero. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Today we're back for the final episode in our five-part series called Larrikins and Laneways, where we delve into the lives of the slumlords, slygrog sellers, gangsters and crooks who inhabited old Melbourne's most notorious neighbourhoods. Back with us again is historian Michael Shelford, the creator and guide for Melbourne historical crime tours. Our final story is on Charles Lamarchant, who by the late 1920s was labelled by police as the mastermind behind the dope traffic in Melbourne. He sold the drug mostly on Little Lonsdale Street, and his customers were the women who worked in Melbourne's red light district, Little Lon. His life, though, was one of contradictions. He had twice been labelled a hero, once diving into the Yarra to try to save a drowning woman, and on another occasion forcing his way into a burning building in an attempt to save a woman who was trapped. Welcome back to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me again. So how would you describe Charles Lamarchant? He's a very interesting character. Uh, He was referred to the police, and we're talking about 1920s um, for this particular reference, as the mastermind behind the dope traffic in Melbourne. And in that era, by dope, they were talking about mostly cocaine, so Charles Lamarchant was a, around and controlling cocaine dealing in Melbourne in the era when the cocaine was first starting to take off, um, when it was first actually um, coming to the um, public notice as being a real problem. And the area that we most associate him with is Little Lonsdale Street, is that right? Yeah, so in the 1920s when cocaine traffic was first taking off and even right through until the early 1930s when it hit its peak um, in that era, it was mostly being traded onto the Lonsdale Street. So we're talking that that same area we've spoken about in other podcasts called Little Lon. It's the old red light district of Melbourne. So a lot of people look at Little Lon as just being um, the section between Spring Street near Parliament House down to Exhibition Street and the two blocks which go between Latrobe, Little Lonsdale Street, Lonsdale Street. But I kind of think of the Little Lon area as being the next two blocks down the hill as well, so extending down as far as Russell Street into the city. The area where all the cocaine trading was going on was in that section of Little Lonsdale Street, so between Exhibition Street and Russell Street. Um, so that, that was where most of the um, cocaine trade was occurring in those days. And a lot of the reason for that was because originally the people who were purchasing the cocaine were the women who worked in the red light district. So that was probably the obvious place to sell it. So he's got a French surname. Was he French? Uh, his father was, was from, from Guernsey, Channel Islands, just off the coast of France. So that would be where the name came from. What was his dad like? What were his family like? His father was a, a very interesting chap. He was actually a, an acclaimed beer brewer in Australia, but he was the type of guy that used to establish a family and then decide to move on and then just establish another family somewhere else. So over in England, 
before he came to Australia, so he'd moved from Channel Islands, Guernsey to London. He had a family there. He had two children, um, packed up, moved to Australia. He started another family in Australia, a second family, and then just left them as well, started a third family, and Charles Lamarchant was um, one of the children of the third family, and then just packed up, moved to New South Wales and started a new family afresh. And it it doesn't – he was getting remarried, but I can't find any records of divorce. So I'm assuming that he was a bigamist as well. What impact did this have on Charles when his father left? Both Charles and his brother Matthew from a young age, um, I believe, were quite heavily impacted by their father leaving. They would have been left in poor circumstances. Both Charles and his brother Matthew ended up living in a share house on Little Burke Street in Chinatown. And we're talking the 1890s. And the share house was actually occupied by their own gang. So there was a whole gang living in the one house and there were thieves and burglars. And this gang were going out into the suburbs of Melbourne and posing as hawkers, so pretending to be selling things from door to door. But what they do is they get somebody at the front door. And in those days, you know how you had the housewife at home during weekdays and the man was out working? It's kind of like that. So the housewife would come to the front door while she was occupied speaking to the hawker who was trying to sell her something, the other member of the gang would be going in the back door and robbing the house. So that, that's what they were up to in, in the 1890s and they were also involved in robbing people in the Chinatown area, so going, following drunken men up lanes and hitting them over the back of the head and that sort of stuff. So Chinatown had a lot of slug grog shops at that point. Would they have been involved in that trade at all? Definitely in the partaking of the slug grog. So... In that era in Chinatown, um, there are lots of restaurants like there are today in Chinatown. Um, but in that era, they were the places where you could also go for a late night feed. So they, they'd be open um, most of the night, some of the some of the restaurants on Little Burke Street and in the side lanes. But those late night restaurants were also known for selling alcohol against the law and f- for being a place where maybe you could go upstairs and get some opium or maybe the company of a young woman. And those places were frequented by um, women who had worked on the streets during the night, so the, in the prostitution industry, and are looking for um, some sustenance after they finished work, either something to eat, a good, cheap, healthy meal, um, or a drink, um, or some opium. And so these guys who were in the gang, the gang that were with Charles Lamarchand and his brother Matthew, they were described by the police as sleeping all day, and becoming active at night. So the best time to to rob people was often at night time. So I guess they would have been knocking off work and they would have been going into those same restaurants late at night, those same sly grog shops, mixing with the same company. And I reckon they would have gotten a bit of a taste for opium around that same time as well. So tell us more about the other side of Charles Lamarchant, the heroic side of his life story. Yes, on his younger years, um, in the same era that we've been talking about so far, so in the 1890s, he was on a ferry in the Yarra River and he saw a young woman drowning and he dived into the river to try and save her, but unfortunately she passed away. And he said for the rest of his life that that experience affected his nerves and that's what caused um, him to turn to drugs. And then later, in 1900, and this is by this point of time, he's an opium addict, and he's living in Williams Lane in Chinatown. Now, Williams Lane has since been renamed Waratah Place. It's the laneway um, straight behind the Exford Hotel, if you know the Exford Hotel. Um, and it goes between Little Burke Street and Lonsdale Street. Um, 
he was in a uh, his house there in um, Williams Lane slash Waratah Place, and he heard a woman screaming next door. He ran out of the house. He jumped over the back fence, and he saw her in flames. The woman who was in flames, her name was Rose R. Kitt. She was a herself uh, a drug addict, alcoholic, and a working prostitute. Her Chinese husband had recently passed away, and she was on fire. So he managed to put her out. He got her to hospital, but she died later from the burns. And he always always said that that had a, a great impact on, on him as well. He wasn't sure how she caught on fire. Nothing else in the house was on fire, but he said that there was an opium lamp in the kitchen, that she was an opium addict, and it was um, assumed that she must have caught herself a clothing alight on the opium lamp. So, yeah, Rose Arquette, and, and she's somebody I have come across quite a bit in the police files up to that point of time as well. Um, she was a prostitute. Her Chinese husband had passed away recently. And like many of the women who lived in that particular area in that era, she was an alcoholic and a drug addict. It was very tragic. Do we know much about Charles Lamarchant's personal life, whether he, had, whether he ever had his own family? I don't know of him having any children, but he got married in 1905. So he married a, um, a prostitute named Grace Harris. Um, and Grace was somebody who had a, a lot, a, a huge criminal record, but they're all small offences. It was generally with the police just charging her with being an idle and disorderly person or having insufficient means of support. And the police would always give evidence that she was always being seen around the streets at all hours and never working. She had a bit of a criminal history of her own, didn't she? Yeah, so in, in 1908, I'm not sure what was going on. She decided to skip across the border into New South Wales and she was just travelling around the country New South Wales area, so like Wyalong, Cootamundra, that kind of thing. And one day she was just hitchhiking and she got picked up by a horse and wagon. Um, the guy who was driving the horse and wagon stopped at this place called Stocking Bingle, um, they decided to camp there for the night. At the camp spot, there was another camper and she went up to the other camper and she said to him, I've got no money, I've got no place to stay for the night, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And he said, look, here's some money for a hotel room just so that you're all right for tonight at least. And then she went into his tent and put her hand into his pocket and ripped his money out and took off. Now, he, he protested, but she wouldn't give his money back, and she went into town, which is a small town still in the area today, Stock and Bingle. She ended up being arrested there for using bad language on the streets. She was drunk. She was brought back to the camp. She was identified by the guy who'd been robbed, and she was thrown in prison. When she was in prison, the police in New South Wales communicated with the police in Victoria and found out that she had a lengthy criminal record in Victoria and they charged her again um, under something called the Influx of Criminals Act. So the Influx of Criminals Act was a New South Wales act to prevent people crossing the border if they were criminals. You could just have them deported. And after she finished her sentence, she was deported back to Victoria by the Albury Police. <laughs> Does she turn up in the police records again? Well, in 1911, she was charged again with insufficient means of support, so that same charge I was mentioning earlier today. And if you were charged with insufficient uh, means of support, in other words, it was a charge of vagrancy, so it meant that you're actually um, not earning money legally, which means you must be earning, uh, earning money illegally, which means that you are a criminal. And the only way you could defeat that charge was to prove that you actually were earning money legally um, enough to live on. 
So you weren't a criminal after all. If you're a female and you're married, the best way around that charge was to bring your husband along to testify because then they would say, well, you know how things were back in those days. Uh, it was expected that the husband was the breadwinner, etc. If the husband turned up and said, I provide means of support for her, so she does have sufficient means of support after, after all, and that's what he did in 1911, Charles Lamarchant. And he turned up and testified that, of all things, he was a dairy farmer <laughs> and supported his wife in a proper manner. And so she was discharged. I don't know where he was doing his dairy farming in Chinatown and little little lot, but anyway. Of all the occupations that he could have chosen, that one does seem particularly bizarre, doesn't it? Yeah. And what happened to Grace after that? She must have broken up from him. In 1917, um, she was actually arrested in, um, in Richmond. She was begging for cigarettes and money. She was in prison and she was transferred to Sunbury Hospital for the Insane. So she ended up in there in 1919 and it appears that she never left. When she passed away um, in 1935, she was still in the Sunbury Mental Hospital. Mm-hmm. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother, It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilant. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. So tell us now about the cocaine trade. When did cocaine first arrive in Melbourne and when did Charles Lamarchant become involved with it? Well, he, he was being fined for possession of opium right back in the early days, including a £10 fine in, in 1907. Um, but when we get through to um, just after World War I, that's when cocaine is actually starting to be noticed by um, by the police and by officials here in Melbourne. Um, a lot of people believe that soldiers, when they're um, fighting at the front during World War One, the old term for it was marching powder. That a lot of people who are in a difficult situation to get uh, to be brave enough to risk their life and and run towards the enemy, a bit of cocaine assisted them in doing so. But um, when we get into the area post World War One, it started to be noticed around the Little Lawn District and. The thing that first brought the the police's attention to it really was that there was a, a letter that was sent to the police um, from the RSL saying that we've heard that police, I'm um, sorry, we've heard that um, that soldiers, former soldiers, are being doped with cocaine in sly grog shops. It's being put into their drinks and it's ruining their health and it's sending them mad and all this sort of stuff. And so the police had to do um, an investigation into it. And the Chief Commissioner of Police, Sir George Stewart, asked for reports from the various police officers that might know about it. And the reports that came in were from the plainclothes police from the Little Lawn area. And one of the reports that was used by Sir George Stewart explained how it arrived in the area and then Sir George Stewart wrote to the Under Secretary in Parliament and explained what was happening. And this is a direct quote. He said, This is from 12th of August 1919. He said, The poison referred to is the drug cocaine, the sale of which came under the notice of the police about 12 months ago when it was discovered that certain prostitutes in the slums were using it under the denomination of snow. 
The habit was introduced here by a prostitute from Sydney and it quickly spread among the prostitute element. So in those days, they used to call it snow. That was the um, uh, the term that was used um, in the underworld for cocaine. And that's the very first time that you've seen it mentioned in police files in 1919. Yep, first time. Now, when, when we look at the the complaints coming in that soldiers were having their drinks spiked with drugs um, in sly grog shops and in particular cocaine, the part of the explanation that was given in the same report that I was talking about was that a lot of these soldiers had been on such lengthy alcohol benders that it was sending them insane. And so they were making excuses for their, their insanity by saying that their drinks had been spiked, but it was actually the opinion of the police that it was actually just their excess of drinking. And the police said they've never come across a situation where a drink has been spiked by cocaine. So that was pointed out in the same report. Now, what about Charles Lamarchant? What was his involvement with the cocaine trade at this point? When we get through, there was a few different legislations which affected the um, illegal supply or, or made the supply of drugs illegal in Victoria. So the first one was 1905 um, when the legislation was brought in in Victoria um, prohibiting the personal possession and the use of opium. Then in 1914, a law was passed um, where drugs were only to be imported for medicinal use. Um, so that meant you needed a prescription from a, from a doctor. In 1925, in comes something called the Poisons Act. And what that meant was that it was an offence punishable by a fine of up to £100 or 12 months in prison for those found with a prohibited substance, example, cocaine. So the law was basically brought in um, for cocaine, really. And one of the first people to be busted for it was somebody that the police knew had been dealing cocaine for a long time, and that was Charles Lamarchant. So he was actually caught in 1925. So as soon as that law came in, they went after him. So tell us about when he was first busted. Yeah, so the, the first time he was actually um, arrested for the possession of cocaine and the police knew he was, he was um, dealing cocaine before this, but they didn't have the laws that they needed to deal with it and to get him um, actually convicted. December 1925, they searched him in Lonsdale Street. So they just saw him walking along the street and they came up to him and said, you haven't got any snow on you, do you? No, I don't. We'll have to search you. They found packets of cocaine in his pockets and then they went back and searched his room and at this point of time, he was actually living at Gordon House, the same place I was talking about in the last podcast episode, um, the place for people who were down and out, the boarding house on Little Burke Street. So they went back there and they found a huge stash of coke, like a great big jar of it. He tried to bribe the police officers who were searching the place. He said, I'll give you five pounds each if you forget about it, um, which is a lot of money, but they didn't forget about it. They brought him to court and he was sentenced to one month in prison. Was he the biggest figure in the cocaine dealing scene by this time? According to the police, yeah. So the, the next year, they always seem to bust him in December. <laughs> so December of 1926, they've arrested him for cocaine again. They searched him near the Exhibition Gardens on Victoria Street. So that's just the top of the little lawn area, just a couple of minutes walk away. They found cocaine on him again. In court, they actually said to use a direct quote, they said, he is the mastermind behind illegal cocaine selling. And they went on to say that he's ruined uh, countless innocent girls. And he was sentenced to three months in prison. And what's happened to him next? December. Surprise, surprise. But this time it's 1928. So there's a two-year lapse. They set him up this time. His claim was that he'd been asked by a girl to um, supply her with some cocaine. And they met, they were going to meet at St Andrew's Church in South Carlton. So parts of the St Andrew's Church are still there, Rathdown Street. 
the police were watching him from the churchyard from behind trees, etc. And they watched him walk up to a tree, dig around at the base of the tree and um, grab a tin and put it in his pocket. And then they searched him and the tin con- contained deals of cocaine. In his other pocket, he had um, yen shi, which was a type of opium for smoking. Um, he claimed it was a type of opium which you used when you're trying to get off the drug, so it was a weaker type. He had um, quite a lot of cocaine in the tin. And when he was charged by the police and brought before court, um, this time they said he's the mastermind of the dope traffic in Melbourne, so the cocaine traffic. And they also said a direct quote, he has ruined innocent girls and killed more men than had bombs. So this is the impact that they're saying that he's having on uh, Melbourne society at the time, and he got three months in jail for that, for the both the cocaine and the opium charge, so six months in all. And what happened to him in the end? Well, just after he got out of jail, it was less than 12 months after he got out of prison, he died of heart disease. So he had a heart attack, he had pneumonia as well at the time, and he um, died in a um, house, uh, number 122 Cardigan Street. You might um, remember from a previous podcast we did about Long Harry Slater, where Long Harry Slater, during that gang war against Squizzy Taylor, the Fitzroy Vendetta, um, they went into a house and they beat a guy up who was suffering from the Spanish flu at the time. They beat him up with pipes, etc. Same house. Um, so I found that quite interesting. But that was where he was living at the time he passed away. Um, prior to that, he'd been living Russell Street, right near the corner of Little Lonsdale Street, so right in Little Lon. But he, yeah, he's passed away. And what happened to the cocaine dealing business once he passed on? That's when it really started to move into gear. So when the organised crime started to become involved, particularly between when he's passed away in 1930 and 1933, and it was all settled, um, it was all centred, I should say, around the Little Lon area. And when we get into those early 1930s, um, police corruption is becoming involved and there were burglaries of chemical warehouses. So there was a, a, a robbery of some, a place called the Tasmanian Eucalyptus Oil Company, which was part of the buildings that were at the Flinders Street Railway Viaduct. Um, it was broken into three times and each time drugs were stolen, including cocaine, um, morphine, heroin, etc., to be sold in the black market. And each time they reinforced uh, the building more and more to make, try and make it impossible to break into. In uh, 1933, these um, guys actually went in through the building next door and removed bricks and burrowed through the wall to get in there. And it was reported in the newspapers that they stole an estimated $1,000 worth of drugs, 1,000 pounds, I should say, a lot of money. But they, it was actually estimated that the street value just in the cocaine, 15,000 pounds. And what happened next? Well, once that robbery had been done, of course, um, they were trying to offload it onto um, the black market and the black market was all Little Lonsdale Street. And the, there were three police officers in particular, Detective Lacey, Detective Coffey, plainclothes Constable McCary, um, that were hands-on involved. They were not only involved in um, the sale of cocaine, but they were blackmailing people. So they were actually placing bags of cocaine in their car, arresting them, taking them back to Russell Street Police Station and saying to them, if you don't pay us a bribe, you're busted, we'll bring you before the court. And so they were blackmailing people all over the place. They were completely involved in the drug trade and they all ended up being sacked from the police force as a result. So one of the guys that they were blackmailing went to the police and explained what was happening. He himself was one of the biggest cocaine dealers in Melbourne, but his um, statement was believed 
and and there was a huge investigation. It was all front page newspaper stuff for ages. But that gives you a bit of an idea of what was going on in Little Lonsdale Street with the cocaine trade by that era. Mm. And finally, can you sum up the life of Charles Lamarchant for us? Well, he, he was obviously an intelligent man, and I didn't mention it earlier, but he um, learnt three additional languages to English. So he was he was um, he would he knew Chinese, and and by Chinese in that era they would have met Cantonese. He knew Italian, and he knew another language as, as well. So he, he didn't have the best education because of the um, dubious um, childhood that he had, um, but he had the intelligence to um, to learn a little bit extra during his life. When he was being tried in court, the the journalists would say they were astounded by his understanding of chemistry when he was speaking about the drugs and the potency and that sort of stuff. He was obviously responsible for the ruination of many lives, but he tried to save a few as well. So he was a villain, but on several occasions, I suppose, he, he played the part of the hero. The thing that I get from him mostly, though, the thing that interested me mostly about his life was just how it gave me an insight into Melbourne's criminal underworld in an era when organised crime was just first starting to get involved with the drug trade in Australia. Well, thanks for sharing another great story, Michael. Thanks for having me again. If you want to learn more about today's story, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash I-B-A-W to go to the In Black and White page. That's where you'll find all our podcast stories exclusive to digital subscribers of The Herald Sun. In Black and White is written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, produced by John T. Burton and edited by Andrea Tees-Evanson. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to give it a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, leave a review to help us get the word out to more listeners or if you have questions or comments please let me know by email at inblackandwhite at heraldsun.com.au any clarifications or updates to the stories will appear in the show notes for each episode and to get notified when each new episode comes out make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed I'm Felicity Harley and I host Healthy-ish, where we chat to experts, influencers and people in the know from around the globe to arm you with the knowledge to make healthier decisions for your mind, body and soul. I think if we're going to be focusing on health, like sleep is probably the biggest component of that. I I think sleep is the cornerstone. Like choose the harder option because I've never woken up and gone, I regret that run that I went at 4am. I've never done that. Search for Healthy-ish and Extra Healthy-ish wherever you get your podcasts.